On this episode of Fisher's Call Sheet, where we celebrate the people who make production possible, we have production coordinator, Katrina Elder. Day 13 <laughs> of 14-day quarantine. Are you hanging in? Yeah, I am. You know, I'm lucky because I've been busy. I don't know what I would do if I didn't have my work. This is my first time to Australia, and I... I can't believe I have to come <laughs> in these circumstances. It's just—it's one of those things where I've never gotten a movie here, even though they shoot lots of movies here. And uh, in fact, there's so much going on right now in terms of competition. It's fierce. I mean, uh, we've got um, the Baz Luhrmann film shooting at the same time. And then there's another Endeavor show called Nine Perfect Strangers shooting uh, in New South Wales. And so a lot of the crew is, has been taken by them. There's a very tight knit community here. It's very, um, they've got their crews, let's just say. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a whole new world, right? It's a very interesting world. Um, I get tested between three and four times a week. Masks and gloves and zones and, and, arrows on the floor to direct traffic and you know entrances versus exits and if I'm going to be directing so when I'm directing because I'm not acting I have to wear different protective gear the one thing though about uh, being in the performer zone is that whether you're directing or you're acting you're still on that three four times a week testing cadence in terms of control measures that's that's huge You know, we just really have to work with the crew in a way that's in alignment with both um, what the studio wants and also how to just to manage expectations and and um, and to support, you know, really the job that I do is different on this job because uh, while I am a supervisor on this job, it's it's not um, it's not it's not the same type of supervising you know I'm not getting I'm not like getting cranes and <laughs> making sure that you know my group of electric team are taken care of it's more like I'm taking care of the whole crew and having to figure out what the needs are for every department having to do with this one thing so it's like this filter uh, on my whole job it's very interesting but at the same time it's kind of like you know my I can just imagine when, when my name and number come up on someone's phone, they're like, oh, <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> she's in charge of that, the area, right? But the reality is yeah. it's a necessity at the current time. I know for us, it's very interesting because I spend so much time with our crew. It's the closest I can equate it to kind of being like what a lot of other actors do normally, because I'm not a guy who hides in my dressing room or is right. away, right? I'm so close to my crew and I spend so much time with the people I work with. So it's really hard to like maintain that distance or, you know, I got a lot of people I've known for 30 years. I can't give anybody a hug at work. (laughs) I know. I'm really much not that much of a hugger out in the world, but I am at work. And so it's a very interesting dynamic. Well, I mean, as you well know, uh, we carnies or production folk who go from job to job, we tend to develop very close relationships with the people that we work with because oftentimes these are the only people we know for months and months, you know, while you work in this strange little production bubble. And so they're your family, you know? So in terms of getting close with the people you work with, 
Yeah. I mean, I don't go home at five o'clock and, you know, check out for my job. I'm 24 seven. As soon as I sign up, it's on, you know, and I'm on the production like bullet train. There's <laughs> yeah. no, <laughs> there's no there's, stopping. There, there's there, no getting no off. stopping, no getting off. Uh, if, if you go out to dinner, it's usually as a group to discuss something related to what you're yeah. doing. Um, interactions are related and, you know, especially when you're on location or away from home, these are the people yeah. you're with from basically the moment you wake up to almost the moment you go to bed and then you mm -hmm. get up and do it again. And, and the collaborative aspect of it is yeah. the, uh, the nature of trying to always solve problems, especially in your mm -hmm. line of work is, you're always solving things. So it means you're always interacting and pushing up against a problem. And when we're doing it right, it means that we're combining in some way to overcome whatever obstacle stands in the way of this production getting made. So really as production people, uh, when COVID came along and they said, okay, you can't go to work. We started saying like, well, why not? I mean, we, we, are by nature problem solvers, as you said. And so it, it just became a new challenge to overcome rather than a, um, a stop to what we were doing. You know, it's interesting because in my, in my career, um, you, know, <laughs> you know, one problem goes away and a, a hundred come up. So there's never a time when, when we get to sit on our laurels, you know, it, it, I would be out of a job if there were no problems. So, you know, I, we were working with the Navy on, uh, on a show. And I remember at one point we had a situation that was, it, it, it was going to shut us down. I mean, and for, it was supposed to be, we were supposed to be out at sea on a carrier and the Navy came to us and said, Oh yeah, no, we can't, we can't do that. And, and we were like, say what, <laughs> you know, so we had to pivot like that. And so in a matter of days, we were shooting something completely different and, you know, the, an entire crew from elsewhere came, descended upon this, you know, this Navy base and like that, we were shooting something else. And while we weren't out to sea, we figured out another way to, uh, to shoot, a different part of the movie and just move forward. And they, you know, I remember one of them looked at us and he was one of the, the commanders and he said, man, if the Navy worked like production did, it would just, you know, it would be a totally different story. I go back to, you know, you, somebody says, oh, there's a wall. I said, well, get a shovel. We're going under or, you know, like whatever. Let's just yeah. make this happen. Whether it be a shovel or a crane or we're building a bridge over or we're going to raise everything up to the height of the wall so we can shoot straight. Like we're going to find a yep. way over, yep. under, around, through, whichever way. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's the necessity of production. You know, I always say that you have to will these things into existence because yeah. even when you have what you think is a great plan and everything's lined up, it gets in the way. <laughs> Plans, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we call those early, uh, early drafts, right? <laughs> work in progress. I, yeah. I mean, I laugh at. Uh, I, I get a schedule, and I always think to myself, like, yeah, okay, whatever, right, sure. Yeah. <laughs> this is one idea. <laughs> there was a film I was working on, and I, I was joking around with the camera person because I would always give him this sort of, you know, 
so the schedule is coming up, but what's really happening is, you know, we were joking around and I said to him, I said, I've never worked on a project where the script is a bigger fiction than the actual movie is, you know, (laughs) or sorry, the script, I meant the schedule, that the schedule is a bigger script than the movie is. And I I feel like the, the fiction that we're creating is oftentimes like the, the only thing that we can count on is the story that we're creating and then everything else we, we'll see. Yeah, we'll, see. <laughs> we'll see when we get there. How we get there, you know, uh, it's so interesting everything, too because everything. even at the end you go, okay, we're gonna have to get rid of that scene and we're gonna reshape this and we're gonna move these things over here and then we'll just have to do yeah. it that way. Because even when you think yeah. you're, you're done, you're not done. Best directors that I have worked with are those who are editing the movie while they're shooting it. So they're thinking so many steps ahead and you have to, there, there's no such thing as, you know, you're just working on the production part. All we're doing is teeing it up for post-production. And then, you know, a lot of people believe that's where the movie is made is in post-production. And to a large extent, particularly when you're working on these big visual effects movies, you are. You're just teeing it up for another year-long process for a huge, huge visual effects team who's just going to take every frame and, and rethink it. You know, you said collaborative process. It absolutely is. And from day one, you're thinking about, well, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about what are they seeing when they're in the theater? I do like to say theater, but I know that so much of it is streaming, especially now when we can't go to the theater. I I love going to the movies when I was a kid, and I still love going to the movies. Is that what kind of prompted you to come this direction? Oh, God, yes. When I was a kid, I would take the TV guide, and because we had TV guides when I was a kid, (laughs) we'd get it in a Sunday paper, and I would get a highlighter and I would just highlight all the various shows that I wanted to watch during the week. And I was committed, man. I was, I punched in and punched out in front of television every day. And I was lucky because I didn't have a parent who was, or a mother or father who was limiting my screen time. They were like, whatever, the boob tube was a babysitter. And, uh, you know, six kids in the family, the biggest fight was, who's going to get their way in terms of the television channel. I also remember uh, doing my homework in front of the TV and, and there was just no limits. A sick day was like, yes, then I get to watch cartoons in the morning and then, you know, full on. And then as I got older, uh, my interest moved into film because, you know, you have to remember as well, like the, the evolution of cable television happened when I was a kid and I remember MTV I mean I remember like that flag being planted on the moon and being like MTV it was the end all be all and then you know when when we had HBO it was like a set top box (laughs) just and watching the evolution of beta and VHS and DVD and and now streaming and really seeing how that's affected the business and how it's affected the business that I'm in you know uh, delivery dates, how the filmmakers are thinking about the aspect ratio, you know, what we're shooting it in terms of the definition. Certain studios require a certain definition and you have to respect that if you're going to, you have to think about your deliverables before 
you buy your, you know, not buy, but rent your camera, camera package and your lenses and everything else. Frame rate and how it's going to translate uh, in the international market. And particularly with feature films where it, 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 you're not making a movie just for the North American market. You're making a movie for Asia Pacific and South America and, you know, Europe, of course. But, you know, when you have a budget that's like, Two two fifty in terms two hundred fifty million dollars, and then there's marketing costs on top of that. You're you have to think, okay, who first of all is going to put the butts in the seats? What does that mean, you know? uh, And how does the story translate? Because the jokes of a comedy are not necessarily going to translate in um, an audience that doesn't quite pick, you know, doesn't quite understand the nuance of American culture. Um, So that's why you look at these movies and you see like, oh, that's why we're doing all these, you know, Marvel movies and, you know, these, um, you know, comic books come to life uh, because they're very visually easy to, to translate into many, many different languages and cultures. You know, I've seen the the face of, of filmmaking change and I miss the smaller movies I miss you know I worked on a movie called Marriage Story and it was such a great experience it you know I I remember looking at the script and thinking like huh I don't know if I really get it but when I saw the final product and I saw like it happening as we were watching you know watching the actors work on a daily basis and you just saw the story come off the page and I love those kind of movies I, I actually you know when I first got into it I was an actress and I uh, worked um, commercially and theatrically, and I, I've always loved the process of, you know, when the actor looks at the words on the page and then brings them to life. But I understand from a filmmaker's point of view what that means. An actor delivers a performance, and then an editor creates the story, and a director works in both, you know, ends. You know, the collaboration just between those three players or those three elements, if you will, is so important. I've seen entire performances created in the editing room. Not kidding. There was a director that I worked with, David Fincher, who he would cut syllable by syllable. I'm not saying frame by frame. I'm saying syllable by syllable. And, you know, I was working with Rosalind Pike on that movie, and she's a British actress, and she played an American, and she played an American with multiple accents. And so she, um, at, you know, she worked very closely with a dialect coach and created a character, not just from Louisiana, but like a specific place in Louisiana. Then when they got into the cutting room, I thought for sure there was going to be tons of ADR, um, uh, additional dialogue replacement for those who don't know what that means. But there really wasn't. He, he said that, oh, no, we've got it. If it's not on that take, it's on another. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. You know, he's a fascinating filmmaker. And boy, from a actor's point of view, uh, <laughs> he does a lot of takes. It's, it's a challenge because everybody has their own style of work. It is interesting. And sometimes from the sidelines, it's the best film school ever. Because uh, when cable television came into my world, I was like, oh, movies, you know. And I remember watching Top Gun on cable probably, ugh, 
like a million times. Wall Street, I mean, I, I remember watching Wall Street and seeing it over and over. I wore that VHS tape out and I thought I wanted to be, a, I thought I wanted to do work on Wall Street because of that movie. I really did. And then later when I started to think about it, I thought, oh, you know, what I really wanted to do was make movies. It was as an actress, I was working in, in Chicago and I was uh, on a commercial and this director, he and I were just standing there on set during, you know, when second team is there and they're setting up and, and I was just looking around and I was like, you know, what is all this stuff? And I was like pointing at the camera dolly and the dolly track and, you know, and he said, oh, well, you know, and he explained it to me. He explained why they used the camera dolly and why they had to put it on a track and why they had to, you know, put all those little wood blocks underneath it. And, yeah. and you know, what the crane was for and what the, you know, the, the mount on top of the, uh, the crane, the, it's like a remote head for the, for the camera. And I was just fascinated, you know, and I thought, God, this must, cost so much money and it does man I see those numbers now and it's expensive it, it was fascinating to me and he said you know if you're interested in all this stuff there's this really great film school in town and I was at that point where I had quit school and I was like or university anyway and I just uh, I was like I can't take another econ class I can't take another like math class or English class. And I did really well in school. I was, uh, you know, I graduated early from high school and I was very academically um, uh, accelerated and all of that. When I got to university, I was like, it's just, I'm so bored. And so when he said film school, I lit up. I was like, oh, I took film appreciation once. That was really interesting. So I thought to learn how to make movies, what does that mean? And so I, I went to Columbia College in Chicago, and on day one, they put a camera in your hand. It's a Bolex, and you wind it up, but it's a 16-millimeter camera, and we went out and shot movies. I worked in the film cage where people would come to, you know, rent out the, their equipment. So I always had access to equipment, and I, we would take short ends, and we would just go out and shoot stuff, and the lab that we worked with would uh, process our short ends for, like, really cheap, and we had edit, editing equipment, and so we would edit on flatbeds and literally splice the film with a razor blade and tape it together, and I, I mean, I remember, like, you know, <laughs> looking real, at the real. viola. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then, you know, eventually learning Avid and Final Cut and, and that type of thing. But I didn't study editing. It was very um, natural for me to go towards uh, production because I was always the person on set that was telling people what to do and telling people how we were going to schedule the movie to make it the most efficient. And so I often during film school was asked to be production manager or the first AD or you know, something to do with the organizational aspect of the, of, of, of the process. Um, because you can't just turn up with a camera and start shooting. There's a lot of preparation that you have to do. <laughs> and uh, they'll kick you out if you turn up and just start shooting, particularly in uh, Los Angeles, where people are savvy. They're not, they're not so, you know, crazy about you turning up with like 30 trucks without a permit. They're pretty keen in LA because they'll see two people get out and start looking around and it's like they already have on speed dial just waiting for you to break the camera out. They're like, oh, these people are going to try and film something real fast. Oh, yeah. They'll shut you down. I mean, and then the teamsters show up and they're like, are you signatory? You know, yeah. 
so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of considerations that go into the process. And like I said, it was a very natural evolution for me to go from acting to production. Not to, you know, poo-poo what you do, but it just wasn't my bag, man. Because it wasn't on my mind anymore. My, once I got into the film thing, I just kind of was like, see ya acting. Because so much of acting is auditioning, and I hated auditioning. Which Ugh, is a totally I different skill. And we've yeah. worked with people who are amazing auditioners, and then you get them on set, and it's a really big struggle. And, and that's one oh, yeah. of the hardest things is, is there are people who are in anything. There are people who are good at certain skills and to be good at all oh, of yeah. it is a totally different thing. And I've watched some of the most amazing actors I've ever seen not be able to audition and be very uncomfortable or it, it can be a really tough process for a lot of people. Painful. That was never my favorite part. I always was like, okay, yeah, I can go in the room and, and I'm good, but I'm a worker. I'm a show up every day. I'm a, okay, let's try something new. Hey, we're going to get two shots at this because we got about 12 minutes and about the light, light is going to be, yep. <laughs> yeah. and you're going to either make this happen in the next three seconds to make this shot go. And then we have five minutes to make this work or it's not happening and it's not going to be there. And we have a major problem with this project and I'm, I'm in, I like that moment of truth, but it's not the same for everyone. And I was yeah. like you, I spent time on set and was mesmerized and amazed and fell in love with all of the departments. And, and that's kind of where this show comes from is realizing yeah. the talent and the amazing skill that goes into every department and every group and the coordination. When we do this right, not only is it an art form, but it is the most beautiful collaboration of truly unique people. Oh yeah, and from all walks of life. There is, <laughs> yes. You look at a film set and, you know, one time somebody asked me, what's the difference between above the line and below the line? And I said, oh, well, if you're below the line, you could get killed on the job. <laughs> I mean, like, yes. I mean, look, I, that's, a, that's an oversimplification we know, but, um, you know, it, it's people from all walks of life and all different educational levels, creative levels, um, political points of view. I, I mean, everything, you name it. I'm telling you, there's somebody on set that represents that thing. You know, one thing regarding representation, in fact, coming into my job, I was shocked at like how it was like women do this and men do that, even in the film business. And I was like, huh, yeah, no, I don't accept that. <laughs> you know, I was told in film school that if I wanted to make it as a producer, that I should marry well. Yeah. I was like, wow, and I graduated in 1997. Right, it's not, and it, the scariest part is it's not that long ago that that was kind of a standard thing to tell people. Because, I mean, neither of us are that old. And to know that we've known people who thought that that was the only way or that oh, yeah. people worked places where people have said things like that. I mean, I grew up in a unique environment because we were such a mix and such a kind of outlier that we attracted outliers. And, but it's funny, you know, I grew up through the AIDS epidemic in the late 80s and early 90s. Other people were reading about these things. These were things we were experiencing. Gender conformity was not 
the same on set as it was out in the world. And, you know, we were promoting so many women to positions of authority and power. And it was, it was not just mind blowing to watch some of the people who pushed back against that. It was amazing to watch the people in the sets around us who became uncomfortable with the progress that was occurring. As a kid, it's a really interesting thing because I was watching literally the concept of inclusion grow on set, you know, as a child and going, why is that an issue? They're great at their job. And then all of a sudden you listen to other sets or you go visit other sets. You're like, wow, this is 90% male and there's very little diversity here. There's only certain roles that females were allowed to hold on certain sets or, you know, you had female producers who didn't get a voice or a vote. And you're like, like, well, she's here. Meanwhile, they created the show. Right. And, and it was mind blowing for me, but it also, it shows how far we've come, but sadly how far we still have to go. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those things for me, like for me as a, as someone who writes, produces and directs and wants to build these projects. So many of my projects are minority leads or female led, female dominated stories. The fact that sometimes when I go to a meeting to pitch a show or a movie that they're like, well, what if we change the main character to male? I'm like, you have to expand your thought process or all those people can't be friends. I'm like, have you been to one of your productions? Because I'm pretty (laughs) sure that's what it looks like. Yeah. Tina Fey actually is a really good comment about that, becoming the head writer of SNL and how she had been pitching uh, a skit for like, Ever. It was years and years that this skit was pitched. And finally, when she was the head writer, she said, yeah, let's do it. And everybody in the room kind of groaned because it was like something to do with like, I don't know, a period commercial, like, you know, pads or something. It was like right. a joke. And because everybody else in the room who was a man didn't get it. They didn't like get the joke. Right. And Tina was like, it's funny. And they're like, is that really funny? And like every woman in the room was like, yeah, it's funny, you know? And, you know, just some silly little thing like that, where it literally takes a woman in the room to get that it's funny. And then it's funny to 51% of their audience. This is the thing, whether it be gender or even race at this point, is I'm always like, it doesn't just apply to that group. Every guy on the planet had a mom Every guy on the planet has been around other women in his life, whether it be a sister, an aunt, a cousin, obviously a romantic partner, if that's their orientation. You've been around, like, it doesn't just apply to the one group. On Roseanne, we did an episode about the girls getting their period, and that was a monumental fight. I remember it. And yeah. The network was concerned and there were lots of people who were like, well, you can't do that. You can't make jokes about it. And, you know, we got this whole list. It was like literally probably a day, day and a half of like all the words you couldn't say. Uh, and studio like, notes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and you laugh because you go, and now, you know, now coming back to television, some of the things that we can say on a weekly basis, I'm always like, oh yeah, we can say that now. Cause Yeah, you're like, oh, I'm such a prude. You're like, you're clutching your pearls. Well, I did like, and I think it still carries in my writing, is I have definitely not a prude, but I think you have to be sneaky about how you say things. 
And I think that's some of the game that used to be really fun that we were losing a little bit as we open up the language. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting though. And, and again, it's so weird that this just came up recently. Um, we took, I feel like we took a lot of strides forward and then we're kind of like really cagey right now about what we, what we can or can't say in comedy in particular, it's really tricky because you have so many, um, comics who came up and just pushed doors down knocked it really and pushed the boundaries on like things they said and so much of it was controversial beyond right and you think oh you know you think of like even Roseanne or you think about you know Richard Pryor or you know Eddie Murphy like Bill Barr right now or you know so many comedians who push and push and push and they said you know I just want to say whatever I'm going to say and then to hell with it either I get a laugh or I don't get a laugh that's the result we're going for and of course you know you have the studio who their result is we want to keep our advertisers you know they have a different audience they're not making television shows for the audience per se they're making it for their advertisers and it's a real shift in like what they have to think about in terms of how they're going to keep operating because ultimately somebody's got to pay for it right right so you know it's a total it's a totally different perspective that they're coming from um in terms of what their audience wants they might be more progressive or more uh desirous of of you know like you said you know hearing those types of um listening to, to shows about the, that particular subject matter that interests them on a daily basis. But the advertisers say like, you know, but we don't want to offend this group. And then we don't want to offend that group. And it's suddenly like this whole like game of like finding where the weird sort of milk toast middle is. And suddenly it's like, Ugh, there goes the story. There goes the fun. It's hard when but, you're writing. And, and Dave Chappelle, I would say to me right now is kind oh, of on the cutting edge because, because yes. he's so brilliant and, so brilliant. There's this element with him where it's almost like George Carlin-esque thing is he's saying things that have so many multiple layers and he's saying things that people don't want to hear. But he's he doesn't have them. anything to lose. Yeah, but he's doing them in a way. Well, it's funny. In some ways, he has everything to lose and he doesn't care, right? Which is the most free. He already lost it. Right. He, but, well, actually, he, like, he, he gave it up. away from a billion dollars. Right. Like, and, he, and it's amazing because that's there's such a power in that and audiences are clamoring to hear it. But on the flip side for a network or some kind of larger entity, you're at right. so much greater even, risk. You know, Paramount is owned by Viacom. You know right. what I mean? Like yep. all the studios have their corporate overlords. Right. So. And, and, and the system is that way now. And you're tied to major global conglomerates who have responsibilities not just to board but stockholders and all of the advertisers in between and you just never know which hand is totally in charge at certain times and it you know it's a really interesting dynamic because it definitely changes the way we shape projects and production oh yeah even very recently think about tropic thunder Think oh, yeah. about the jokes in that movie. Well, no, I don't think you could make that movie. No, I, I was shocked. never make it. I was shocked that movie got made. And I was really shocked that people still regard though. it well. 
because I, because of how far we've shifted, right? Because the nature of the shift. Well, okay, there's two, you know, it's interesting because we could go down a line here, but when you look at a film and you think about the historical context of the film, I brought up Wall Street a minute ago. I mean, think about the historical context of that movie. One of the themes of that movie was greed is good. Yep. You know, that is like 80s to yes. the max, yes. right? Yes, make um, as much money as you can. However, to, yeah. yeah. How, however, you right. do it, there there really are no rules, and this is empowering. Daddy doesn't sleep. Yeah, no yeah. sleeping, and in a weird way, was perceived as like the American dream at the time. Big time, and you know, then you know, cut to two thousand and eight, when Wall Street fell apart. I was living in New York when that happened, and I remember my roommate at the time. We were living in Brooklyn, and he was like you're going to need to get some MREs. I was like, what the hell is an MRE? He's like, meals ready to eat, girl, and water too. We got to store that shit up. I was like, are you insane? He's like, I'm telling you, it's going to be civil unrest. I thought, holy crap, like this guy's insane. But there I was at, you know, Trader Joe's, like getting my canned soup and like really prepping for the end. And it was, it was very strange that time in New York with Wall Street sort of collapsing and then the Fed like bailing them out. And, you know, then there's a shift from like um, the Bush era to the, you know, to Obama. And, you know, what did that all mean? And, and then, you know, and then the sort of, I mean, geopolitical and remember the writer's strike happened that year too. Yeah. And it was in large part when the writer's strike happened, I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I hung it up. I was like, production, it's a grind as it is. The business came to a screeching halt and suddenly it was reality television stepping in. Yep. I thought, uh-uh, I am not doing that. And so I, I, like I said, I hung it up and I moved to New York and I got out of the business. I've gotten out of the business so many times and gotten sucked back in. But you're never going to get out. You never, <laughs> well, there's the part of you you're never going to get out, but you don't want to get out, right? Like there's an element of it, It's this it's production. It's syndrome. Yeah, it, well, production is a love-hate thing, especially as a production coordinator. People, <laughs> they, everybody thinks they have an idea of what your job is. Nobody knows what my job is. No. My job doesn't, isn't defined. Right. So what do people think you do? They make sure, I make sure the call sheet gets out every night. <laughs> and what um, do you really do? What do I, what do people think I do? People think I do whatever it is they want me to do. Whatever they um, need you for, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so much of my job is about putting out the daily fires. But what I really do is I work very closely with the studio and the production manager to make sure that the movie is not only compliant, but also that we can deliver it. And at the end of the day, I wrap it up into a little bow and I hand it to the studio and I say, there you go. Because I have to take the mess and distill it into this hard drive, <laughs> literally, and say, this is where all the bodies are buried. <laughs> and then and they, make something. You know, and <laughs> I'm not delivering creative uh, stuff. I'm delivering the paperwork. I'm delivering 
Okay, so I said compliance. What that means is the, the studio, like we said, answers to um, the, the government, uh, the local government, they answer to the federal government, they answer to the corporation, they answer to the insurance companies, they answer to SAG, IATSE, CGA, um, and whatever other guild or- Every other um, guild and each area has their own guild and departments and yeah. they all have a voice yeah. and, a, and a statement to be yeah. made their own I'm part of a union and laws Two unions. And yeah me me too and, and uh, i don't even know how many at this point um are you are you were you ever part of iatsi when you were working on set no well so i went to go into the electrical so i have the most bizarre path because i started set well i started after it then i got to sag then i started doing some individual stuff that was under another union that doesn't exist anymore and then i went behind the camera and so i've been through pretty much every realm on that side and then i'm going back to like writers guild directors guild all that stuff and kind of re-establishing all of that but at one point Jeez, you know, i worked i've worked uh props set decoration uh production design electric grips camera operator like I was lucky and every time I moved out of this, I was, I was construction coordinator and built sets, you know, like all these things I've done, my Emmy nomination is for production design on a sports show. Like, like, Oh, wow. The crew of guys I took after working at that job, going back to the above the line, below the line that people used to talk about, I kind of shatter the line. So I don't really, I've never really fit under those categories, but the crew that I ran I was the only guy who didn't have a felony record and we were a tough motley crew, but the hardest working, most talented people I've ever seen. I had a welder who could make anything. I, you know, we had fabricators and, and find the most amazing people in this business and they do things that are beyond artistic and beyond explanation. And they'll mm -hmm. turn to you and say, well, you know, we could do this. And then you almost have to turn to, whoever the union person is, whoever else is in charge and say, you okay if we do that? Cause that, that sounds like a really good idea. That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. we probably turn to you and say, we're going to get some approval for this. Well, yeah. Okay. So that's a really good example because my mind, as soon as somebody says, Oh, we're going to do something dangerous. I don't ever think to myself, Oh no, we're not. I think to myself, okay, so how are we going to do it? Well, how are we going to do it? We're going to come up with a plan. And we are going to have the best safety people and we're going to have the, we're going to have probably a billion meetings about it. And it is going to be airtight and we're going to make sure we rehearse it. We're going to make sure we pre-visit. We're going to make sure that we have the minimal amount of people on set during the, the, the explosion or the thing or the whatever. And we're going to make sure that we maximize uh, the amount of um, time and energy spent so that we are constantly, because those, those dangerous things that you do, they also cost money, you know? It, you know, I think of, like, I worked with Michael Bay and I, I, he produced a movie that I worked on and he also directed and produced a movie that I worked on. And Michael is a person that has big ideas. Like, he, and he, you just get them done, you know? And he works with these amazing special effects people, amazing visual artists. You know, when you, when you work on a movie like that, where it's 
you know, so much of it, you don't even see it while you're doing it. And then, you know, later you see what they did with it and you're so excited. It's so fascinating. In terms of safety, the studio says, okay, well, yeah, we have to mitigate risk. And that's where, I mean, I come in. So I am, you know, dealing with all the risk mitigation and the, um, you know, making sure that everything is insured and making sure that we are, uh, like I said, compliant, that we're doing the safety meetings, that we're talking about safety, that we have the plan, that we submit. Like even when you're shooting with drones, for instance, we have to make sure that we're answering to the FAA, make sure we're insured, make sure that all the people are properly licensed. And I do all that. When they say to me, oh, hey, you know, we're going to have a, a marine unit and uh, we're going to be, you know, there's going to be the actual picture boat, then there's going to be the camera boat, there's going to be all the support boats, we have to have a green room boat, and also we have to have a dock, you know, oh, we're also going to have a drone that day, and I mean, it's just everything. So not only do you have all the equipment that's on top of these um, toys, but you then have all of the toys, like say on water, you know, or a drone in the sky. There's just all these different elements that you have to think about. And you have to make sure that at the end of the day, if anything happens, that we're covered and that we have the right people there. Everything from a standby ambulance to a medic on the boat and a medic on the ground, you know? Right. I used to work as a rescue diver and I worked productions where I was the guy in the water. What haven't you done, I've man? done a lot of stuff. <laughs> this is what happens when you start young, get married young, have kids and have to work a lot of things to make it all work. And you're yeah. a, a creative person who didn't want to get the standard nine to five and, and did that for a while and realized that that was not going to work. Everybody has to check their boxes and then they all come to you and say, okay, we think we checked some of our boxes and you have to go through and make sure not only were those boxes checked, but all the ones that none of them realized or planned for have to be coordinated too. And then you, you come up with these massive plans mm -hmm. and then we shoot 30 seconds right and then then we got to move on to the next setup and we got to do mm -hmm. it all again and i don't think people realize just the scope it, you know you said we're carnies it's a moving it's a moving civilization all the time people joke about going to burning man i'm like that's pretty much kind of in a way what we do only with a few more guidelines and and Less drugs. Less drugs, right? <laughs> like we're, we show up in the middle of a place. We, we build a world. We make sure the world works. Sometimes we blow it up. Other times we take it down. Then we reshape all of the area. And then a lot of times we have to put it back close to the way we found it or better. Yeah, yeah. You, you never want to burn a location. And I mean, I don't mean that. Uh, I mean that in a figurative way. Right. Because sometimes we do burn it down and then we have to replant the trees and make sure that it looks the way it did when we arrived. And if not, if not that way, better. Yeah, I mean, no kidding. We built a house, the, uh, one of the first location jobs, no, I guess the second location job I had, we went to uh, South Carolina and we shot a movie called The Patriots. This was back in like, um, like 98, I wanna say, 99 maybe. And um, we built a house. And it was this big, beautiful Southern house with this wraparound porch. And I mean, you know, not every room was tricked out inside of it, but um, right. you know, wherever we were shooting was, but it was just this gorgeous house. The last day of shooting, we burnt it down and it was magnificent. It was a multiple camera day and it was just massive. And, you know, so we had all this 
footage and we shot that movie on film. In fact, we shot that movie on film, but we did digital dailies. And that was such a fight with the studio, you know, just moving into this whole tech world. I mean, we really didn't even, we used email back then, but we don't, we didn't use it like we use it now. I mean, we still were sending the call sheet out via fax back then. And, you know, script changes, you would print off all the script changes, maybe a hundred different colors in the script. And, you know, but anyway, so we burned down this house with all this footage and they, and my job, a part of my job back then was to ship all of the raw footage to the lab in LA. And then the lab would process the dailies and then they'd put the dailies on a drive because remember they're digital dailies. And then they would ship the digital dailies back to the editorial. And this particular time they were like, we can't just, I mean, this is really special footage. Like we can't shoot this again. The house is burnt down. There's no more house to build and reburn. So they put a PA on the plane with the footage. And then that person flew to LA. They delivered the footage and then they spent one night in the, I think Universal Hilton or whatever. And then got on a plane and flew back to South Carolina the next day. It's just silly little things that we do. We do that kind of crap all the time. But I mean, God, I had to ship in these great dames for that movie back and forth, back and forth, back yes. and forth so many times. Like, I can't tell you, I have so many stories of weird things I had to do. Oh. Once I had a director tell me to go find like 7,000 uh, golf tees in different colors. I was like, what in the hell for? I mean, honestly, I can't ask why. I just say, okay, and I do it. You know, whatever they ask me to do, I do it. I give us a couple more examples. Things, I people don't understand. <laughs> Production, you get asked for things that you would never get asked for in any other realm. I mean, there are some things, like, I can't talk about. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's always some of those. I mean, those are the things that come up first in my mind. Right. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, you can't say that. You can't say that you're being recorded. Um, like I said, I know where the, berries, the the bodies are buried a lot. I mean, I get called about every silly little problem. You know, everything from, you know, we stay in a lot of hotels. Everything is arranged before we get there. And, you know, everybody has their little perks that they have to have while they're um, in a hotel. And, you know, certain arrangements of rooms and certain, you know, security levels and also trying to keep it as secret as possible when you have a high level person staying in a hotel. It's everything. I, I can't, there's so many things I don't, I, I, too, yeah. I don't even think of anything. As, I don't think of anything as abnormal anymore. No, I, I really don't. Well, that's the thing I try to explain to people is our days are abnormal. Every day is abnormal. Every project is abnormal because there isn't really truly a norm in our business because every production is different and the cast of characters don't mean on screen. I mean, in general, is different. Behind the camera. Yeah. Yeah. And and you never know. Uh, I've worked in a movie where we had to rent out an entire hotel. I worked in a movie where they rented out everything but the bottom two floors because they wanted the hotel to pretend like it was open normally. And then the other four floors were all us, but the top floor was only actors, but two actors had to be on one end by themselves. And then everybody else was on the other, right? Like, then you just go. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Whatever comes with 
this territory this time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've done everything from chase off paparazzi to, um, you know, to just deliveries in the middle of the night, <laughs> um, bailing people out of jail. Like, <laughs> I, I was the guy who used to go pick up my coworkers when I was 16 years old at 2 a.m. from places I probably, I was not allowed in, you know, and then I would take them home and their, their spouse would be standing on the porch. And the spouts would be like, they're not coming in. Yeah. Take them someplace yeah. else, fish. Take them, take them wherever <laughs> you want. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm 16 years old. Like I wasn't even supposed to be involved in this to begin with. Like I curfew. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I don't want to be the adult in this situation. <laughs> Where am I supposed to take them? Like, okay. I know. Oh yeah. Speaking of adults, I mean, we we joke around about location. You know, um, that it's recess for adults or you know when people start to like hook up when they're on location we say oh no that's not a relationship that's a locationship yeah. you know <laughs> yes yes there's a lot of those everybody gets pushed together so tightly and you work yeah. so closely together you meet people and then you won't work together again sometimes for 5 10 15 years as i've kind of come up in the business as well you know um some of the i mean we joke we say old timers you know but you know people who have got longevity in the business and they have lots of years of experience and you just respect the hell out of them that they've um they've lasted as long as they've ha they have because i i said i've burned out a couple of times you know i tried to get out and i fell back in and here i am <laughs> one time i saw this guy um he's a locations manager and we worked on uh, a small film in la and then i was working with him um uh, on, I worked on Top Gun for a couple of years, two movies ago. He, the first day I saw him, I was like, oh, yes, you're on this movie. And I was so excited about it. And he looked at me and he was like, did you shrink? <laughs> I, mean, like, I was like, oh, well, I'm glad that I stand so large in your mind. <laughs> he was like, no, I think you actually shrunk. I was like, yeah, well, a couple of years in this business will do it to you. And you left and you came back. What motivates you? What makes you <laughs> undertake this responsibility, project in, project out? Um, I think I'm maybe a little certifiable. Um, I think it's, I, I love the pace, you know? There's, there's never a dull moment. You know, I said, I'm sitting here in quarantine and 13 days have flown by because I am busy. I am, I am on the prep bullet train right now. And, uh, you know, and I'm directing things from afar. First I was in LA, at, you know, 17 hours time difference. And now I'm here and I, now, I, now I have to deal with LA, you know, this kind of forward moving, constantly, you know, chugging along it's busy it's just you know and I think I love that I'm I'm drawn to it I'm drawn to the problem solving I I I am a natural problem solver I go I go toward the problem I don't I don't get I'm not afraid of it you yeah. know and I I look at um I look at those opportunities as opportunities to shine and um so there is I mean of course we all do it for the glory <laughs> you know <laughs> Um, but we, do, I don't do it. You know, a lot of people back home, they see, 
the credit at the end of the movie and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't know you worked on them. And I saw your name and it's like, oh, you, you know, like, did I get a credit in that? I didn't even see, like, I didn't even wait to the credits. Like, I have no idea. And they're years um, ago. That's the hard part, I think, too, for people, especially when you're doing movies is, Oh, yeah. That could be two years ago. That could be two projects ago. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and you're you're so <laughs> you're so built on today and the next thing. If you could go back, right, knowing what you know now, are there projects that you would go back to or do something different? Oh, I still wake up in the middle of the night going like, oh, I forgot to do that thing. You know, <laughs> I have these lists of. Well, I mean, look at I don't get to. I don't have the like advantage that people at certain levels have of being able to choose my projects. My projects choose me. The phone rings and I answer it. And then I say yes or no, based on my availability. I mean, hopefully you work hard. People see you work hard. They see that you deliver and then they want to keep working with you. So you end up having sort of a thread of people that you work with. Um, it's not always the same group, but I don't, I don't get the, you know, I don't get to choose per se, other than to pick up the phone and say yes. I think it's interesting. People outside of our business don't, most people don't work in a field where your last project could be your last project, right? And so we're constantly (laughs) in this mode of like, you have to make the next thing. And in some ways, the last thing matters from the standpoint of trying to make it great because it helps opportunity for the next one and you make these connections and these through lines how do you bridge that gap and and know that no matter how great you do on this project the project has a a expiration date essentially Mm -hmm. Uh, my relationships are with the production managers the line producers and the um, studio so physical production at the studio i get calls i mean i feel like i've been working for paramount you know i work for them year after year after year and now I'm doing my second Netflix movie and you know this but maybe other people that might be watching this don't is that when you sometimes you start a job and you're in the really early prep uh, time and you're not officially greenlit yet and you're you know you're sort of moving out of the development phase and into the the prep of the actual shoot the physical uh, production portion And so you're operating in this strange nebulous land where you're answering to the studio still and the, and not sort of the production manager, but really so much of my, in the early stages, I'm answering to the studio. There is this feeling constantly like, you know, oh, you could just get shut down at any moment. Like they might not green light you, particularly when you're working on these like huge budget movies where they, they have to like be sure that the casting is right and be sure that the, you know, that the package is right. And so you, you just go to work every day and you just hope that the next day isn't your last. Um, so in this weird nebulous world, there's this constant feeling of like, well, it could go to, it could go away tomorrow, you know? And so you're, you know, the studio is like, yeah, but you know, you'll still come and work for us. And man, that just, you know, that makes me feel good. And I'll tell you, I mean, you, even on this movie, like we couldn't figure out what location we were going to shoot in. And there's so many factors that go into it. Everything from tax incentives to um, casting decisions to coronavirus. Uh, <laughs> I got a call to work on a Martin Scorsese movie. And I 
cannot believe I did this, but I said no to it. I don't say no very often, but when I, from a production standpoint, they were going to go shoot it in this really remote location. And I thought, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> like I just, I just, from a production standpoint, like what is the availability of the hotels? Like, where do you find the people to work for you? You have to bring everything in. Guess whose job that is? Yeah. This girl. And you got to make it work. And people are all going to have issues because it's difficult. They're Hollywood people. They're and it's, terrible. It's They're difficult, difficult. In, in a good situation, right? So it's hard when you go out to the middle of nowhere or... or you can be at the Four Seasons and they're still complaining. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody walks in to wherever your office is because you don't have a set office. Nobody walks into your space or calls you or emails you because they think everything's great and they just want to send you a nice note. <laughs> like everyone is, and everyone thinks their emergency is the emergency because every department feels like, because for them it is, it's their right. livelihood, it's their life, right. it's their portion. But you yeah. get all yeah, yeah. of those at the same time on top of each other. <laughs> I guess what I really should be asking you is, how do you manage stress? How do you, how do you balance your life? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, you know, I think that um, I I eat stress for breakfast. I mean, it's just, it's what fuels me. I, I don't think that um, if you don't like stress, you're not in this business. I know people it, joke it, with it, me. They're like, how do you do what you do every day between all the different jobs and things that I've done over the years? And I'm like, man, I was trained for this. <laughs> this is relatively simple because at least most of the time, I have a pretty good idea of either what we're supposed to do or where the shortcoming is. And what we have to overcome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, how do I manage stress? <laughs> Just power through. If there's always an end, you know, you, it's every, you know, this too shall pass. I, I, I have in moments of massive stress, I just think to myself, you know what, there's going to be a time when we look back and we will have done this. For every movie that's on your IMDb, for example, right? Somebody can look mm -hmm. down your film credits. For every one of those, there's at least three or four stories probably where that production <laughs> almost didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And there was a day where the sky was falling and everyone wanted to know where we were all running to. And then there was the day where people called you to ask you how you were putting it back together. You know, hey, Katrina, how are we going to make this work? There was a moment probably in every single one of those where whoever the parent company or whoever was writing the check said, uh, we have a problem or, or, or can we need to adjust this, right? Because it's usually, you know, there's always- the... uh, you, No, usually it's like, we're shutting you down. Yeah. <laughs> or no, Yeah. no, you will not have those actors jump off that building. <laughs> right. It, it's like, right? Like they're not jumping <laughs> yeah. off, right? It's always like almost the fairest view. Well, it's it. never- <laughs> Okay, look, it, again, like it's, it's never a secret. Like we can't keep secrets no, because, because you have to be covered. Hello. Right. You know? There's video. <laughs> There's never, you can't, and we have the biggest mouths anyway. Like, you know, I mean, look, we have everybody sign NDAs, but you can't have the public sign an NDA. And, and you can't go Guess anywhere what? where people don't exist. I have a friend try. who worked on a movie in the middle of the jungle. And he said, somebody took video and posted it online. He goes, he goes, they came after all of us on the crew. He goes, and then when they 
figured it out. They did like this little investigation. They found out it was some guy from a small town miles away who came on a motorcycle and videotaped it because it was the only thing going on in that part of the world at that time. Oh yeah. You can't stop it. You know, marketing in the, in the, in the studio and how they want the film to be perceived from beginning to end, it's all this incredible um, plan of theirs. So you want to make sure that you're supporting their plan and that you just enough leaks out so people know to get excited, but not too much because you don't want them to know the whole story. Okay, so we had to go to San Diego and shoot three days of Top Gun at the beginning of, um, in, in May of 2018. And it was, you know, due to various extraneous circumstances. You know, when you're prepping a Tom Cruise movie, I don't care if you're shooting three days or 300 days, it is still a Tom Cruise movie, you know? And Tom is very recognizable. He can't go anywhere in the world without being recognized. And so to try and keep that a secret, I, I mean, come on. And he's in San Diego on a Navy base? Like, what else could it be? Right. And so the studio was trying so hard to keep it secret. And we had really good partners at the hotel in which we were staying. And they were very supportive of our security plan. We never called him by his name. We just kept saying, like, oh, you know, when people would ask, who is it? Who is it? And I'd be like, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, just playing dumb. And then we got there and Tom was on his motorcycle and he was just, tearing down a runway and an F-18 is like, you know, <laughs> it's just beautiful. And the sunset is gorgeous and it's San Diego and Navy and just perfect. And next thing you know, on Tom's Instagram, you know, it got announced. It's because we couldn't keep the lid on it and TMZ was there and they were leaking it and, you know, everybody was trying to get a piece of it. And then finally, Tom and the studio were like, we just have to control this by, by announcing it. And they did. And it was so exciting. It was like, I finally got to tell my family what I was working on. And they were like, what? I mean, mine's blown. Tom Gunn, you know? And it, it was, and of course, the question, is Val Kilmer going to be in it? Is, you know, <laughs> who's going to be in it? Who's going to be in it? And I said, uh-uh, that's it. You get, the, you get to know what the studio released. That's all I'm telling. And, you know, even for me, it's, it's exciting to be able to keep that secret from my family because they, they too are part of the movie going public and they get excited when I tell them, oh, I'm working on The Matrix. They're like, what? Like, mind blown. It, it's fun. It's fun, too. You said, why do we do it? Because it's fun. You forget about the pain. You know, it's like childbirth. You just forget. <laughs> and then it's out and it exists and it has a life of its own and you enjoy, yeah. you know. I mean, the stories. You, oh, my God. We, I wouldn't tell you this if they didn't include it in one of the teaser trailers, but we were, we were on the Navy base up in China Lake in, uh, in, in California. And we, uh, the construction um, had, had built a, a like a, guard shack, if you will. And um, the idea was that character pulls up and he's, that's kind of like the, the intro to this really sort of steely 
um, character and that Ed plays. It, the guard check does what a guard check what a guard does and uh, and announces announces them and he's there to like you know be be the stern you know colonel or whatever the hell he is. The gag was that this plane was just going to go like that and just pop up like out of nowhere. Oh my god, it was brilliant and we had this incredibly talented uh navy pilot who did this work for us and he i mean that planes is coming like this like f-18 just beautiful just right at the last minute like that and the roof got blown off this little guard shack and you see like the air just move in the like sound waves just right and ed just stands there like nothing like a statue and everybody around him like hit the deck behind the camera on the camera it was insane he didn't move he is brilliant and it yeah. is such a good shot and we didn't mean for that roof to get blown off but <laughs> it's an f-18 man I mean, happy accident yeah it was so great it was so great and god ed he is such a talented actor and just a wonderful person. I've worked with him twice and he is just brilliant. He's brilliant. So man, he couldn't have done it any better. One take. <laughs> what are, who are some of the other people who really stick out to you where you're like, oh, I hope I get to work with this person again. Oh, you know, I, I just circle the day when I get Adam to Driver. Okay. Such a great, wonderful actor. Uh, Glenn Powell. Okay. He's so funny and personable and talented. He's all the things, you know. He really is. He's fantastic. Okay. What is the first thing you look for on a call sheet? Uh, the call time. But, you know, by the time the call sheet comes out, I've seen it a hundred times. I usually look at what the special equipment is and who, uh, what the call times are, who the first man in is. I order all the special equipment generally. And so I just want to make sure that it's... Uh, you know, on the call sheet. So, and the, the operators that are there to operate the special equipment are on the call sheet and I know what their call times are and I can translate that information. Every day is different. So it sort of depends on what the concern of the day is. If we're on stage, it's one thing. If we're out in the location, it's a different thing. All right. So that begs the question, what is the last thing you want to see on a call sheet? Usually <laughs> by the time Friday rolls around, and you have gotten into splits, you start to see that like 3 p.m. call time. And you're like, oh boy, that means I'm going to be working until 3 a.m., you know? I mean, look, I have to admit that because of my position, I don't have to work till 3 a.m. anymore because I'm not needed on the set at 3 a.m. So much of my job is done from an office mm -hmm. that I can do it anywhere. I mean, while I know it's going to be painful for those people who do have to be there till 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5, 6, whatever, it's a whole thing. Because when you get into splits, my concern is that if we shoot a really long day and we've had a really long week, that I have safety concerns. I have to make sure that everybody is going to be okay to drive home. And I have to ask myself the question, do we need to get courtesy hotels for people? Are we, are we going to need to concern ourselves with middle of the night coffee trucks? What about second meal? And, you know, it's a whole different ball of wax when you have to do it at three or, you know, two o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the morning than it is one in the afternoon. All right. Now, what's the thing you love to see at craft services? 
I know. I ask everybody. And for you, maybe not as much, but. Again, I split my time. Mostly I'm in the office, but I do go out to set. I drink espresso and I like in the office for there to be some type of espresso machine with um, a milk frother. Okay. <laughs> so that's all I'm concerned about. Okay. Now, what do you hate to see at craft services? Uh, I think it's kind of nasty when there's food just like laid out on a table and you're, you're thinking to yourself like, you know, like, ooh, that mayonnaise looks a little coagulated. <laughs> like, yep. Especially in the hot sun. Ew, on location, yeah. On it, so no, nasty. Katrina, how do you define success? Success is getting to a place where I can say no. <laughs> and balance in my life that I have yet to achieve at where I have a better work-life balance. You know, I am very much like a work, 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 work person. When I turn it on, it's on. And I am now in my old age um, trying to find a better balance. And I think that that is the, the, the best success I can have is to have it all. <laughs> okay. So then I always ask people, based on your definition, how are you doing? I am I'm doing pretty damn good. You know, I didn't know anybody when I got to Hollywood. And now I get to work on, you know, Top Gun and The Matrix. And I have this opportunity right now. Here I am in Australia. Like, what? How did that, how did that happen? I yeah. didn't know anybody in the movie business when I was a kid. Yeah, it's that, that young girl who used to go through the TV guide and mark all the shows she wanted to watch and fight all of her siblings for control of the television, <laughs> right? Yeah. To now work on iconic projects and to have found this niche not only into something you were so passionate about, but to have made that your living. It's pretty impressive. It's pretty exciting, too. And I work in a very big business where it's a it's a strange small town yeah and we all know and love each other and take care of one another and we have our little family feuds it's I can't imagine doing anything else I really can't you know people always say like oh so if you won the lottery would you like quit and I just think to myself no but I might do something different like yeah. maybe I don't know I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't coordinate, but I'd probably produce. Would that be something you'd want to do? You'd want to produce? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I, I, that's the, that's the goal. And what kind, if I may, what kind of project? I, I, I say smaller, but when I say smaller, I mean, uh, where the scope of the movie is less about the toys and the bots and the, you know, the superheroes and more about the stories of the people. And, um, you know, Jojo Rabbit last year was just brilliant, so creative and so heartwarming and heartbreaking. It's just, that's the type of movie I'd like to make, you know? And I look at other movies over the years that have influenced me. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned a couple of them, you know, Wall Street and, um, even Top Gun. I don't know if I'd necessarily like to produce those movies, though I can see how some of my talents and what I've done in the past would lend itself towards that because, uh, again, with problem solving. And those big movies come with bigger problems and bigger responsibilities as well. But what I like to watch 
and what I would see myself being really passionate about are movies that are more um, geared towards the intimate relationships between people. What it means to tell a very specific story about a very specific place. And yet you're telling the story about everything and everybody. Because the more specific you get, the more it is relatable. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love. And you watch a movie, it opens your eyes to a different part of the world, a different time and space. I do love limited series get to really deep dive into, uh, into story. And I think that I would go down that route as well. I think it's fascinating to be able to tell a, a much larger scope of a story and just get into like the different characters. Whereas when you have just, you know, two hours to tell a story or an hour and a half to tell a story with a movie, you just really are focusing on maybe one uh, major storyline and one sort of sub storyline. So it, it's great to be able to see these limited series and really deep dive into them. I do like some of the, um, the work that's being done where they take a theme and then they show from season to season how that theme develops, like Narcos or The Crown or, you know, even mm -hmm. Ryan Murphy has an interesting take. He'll find a theme and then he'll just, you know, go with that theme from season to season to season. I think that's fascinating as well. As a writer, I believe that there are archetypes and that there is a universal nature to experience and life. Um, we all yearn for many of the same things. So when you were talking, watching your eyes light up, you know, I, that resonated with me is because the projects I try to make are characters that sit in a specific time, place, or experience and are trying to achieve something in their life. But many of those struggles are universal. And I think we can take people totally. on this, you know, this visceral experience and a lot of times share a different life than maybe one has experienced, but transport people into that and share the portions of that that are universal and connective for kind of our greater consciousness. Right. That's my realm. You I, want so, to know what the next level is? Yeah, okay. VR. Yeah, I, I've Virtual worked with reality. VR. I worked for a huge company. We used to do big events and we designed a three, a 3d interactive um, VR experience to teach lessons to people in the audience while transporting them through a story. And for me, I have been a fan of VR really since its early inceptions, you know, in, in the eighties, I had opportunities to interact with early onset VR. And so I've kind of kept dabbling in that field and i have so many ideas for original content in that realm but also for crossover content i i think the cross integration i think is the future of kind of our medium is to be able to take something have you experienced something connect to a storyline or a period or an ip and then for you to be able to step into that in a whole new way oh yeah did you go to lacma and see the um uh, Interactu VR experience. I didn't. It's about people crossing the border from Mexico into the United States and what that experience is like if you get caught by uh, border patrol. And so you are in it in the moment in which border control puts their gun, like trains their gun on you and 
and you it's a vr experience so you're feeling it you're yeah. the avatars are like running all over the most amazing thing is that if you put your if you put your face into the avatar you could hear its heartbeat oh, it wow. was so beautiful it was visceral and that type of learning experience I mean, yeah, sure, when you're watching a movie, it can be a visceral experience, but to feel like you're literally in it, mm-hmm. I mean, it can, it, in, in terms of an educational tool, can you imagine? And even when you think about a VR experience, the way you remember it is so different than the way you remember a film. No matter how many times you've seen the film, it's not the same type of memory. To yeah. be in and to, to be able to see like a whole world around you that's completely imaginary mm-hmm. or very similar to our own world, except that you would never have been in this experience, yeah, except in the virtual world. Yeah. It's just fascinating. Imagine going to a place where education is something that someone can't get and then, yeah, yeah and then be able to, to, to transport a person into a totally different time and space or even just to you know another country that exists in this time and space but they wouldn't be able to go there otherwise i used to work on a tactical team i worked fugitive recovery in between my i I know seriously what have you not done (laughs) i've had a bizarre life but we used to use these training simulators Mm -hmm. and they took real weapons and replaced them with sensors and lasers and you were in tactical environments uh, and urban tactical environments, right? And you go through these scenarios, that training was so much better than even sometimes the physically doing it. You could interact in a way with greater risk, but it was more threatening in a way and more unnerving, I would say, because they would set up scenarios that were no-win scenarios. Mm-hmm. I took my kids to a very toned-down version of that to have them experience because I wanted to give them knowledge and awareness when they became young adults, because both my kids are adults now, to have perceptional awareness, to understand scenarios, especially, you know, if there was some kind of attack, if you're in a place, and then we started training active shooter in educational environments. It's so clear why people have PTSD to a point that they can't put into words and my daughter did a really super basic one with me. She still, to this day, remembers that experience so viscerally, wow. viscerally because she didn't save me in this scenario. <gasps> he, she didn't assess oh, a threat no. and she didn't see the outcome. There was no experience of that portion because I didn't want that to be something that caused some kind of impact. But I just remember... She was like, I didn't, I didn't do the things I should have done of situational awareness. Right? Mm-hmm. And so the scenario mm-hmm. stopped and they just said, you know, the, you didn't manage all of these things. Wow. It touches you in a very different way. And it, it's, it's amazing. You know, uh, you know, there's a company down. Talk about an empathy builder. Oh yeah. In terms of VR, because you, because you can create this immense experience in terms of storytelling and because you know the choose your own adventure nature of um vr mm-hmm. you know as the person in the immersive experience you get to decide if you go right or left 
and so in creating that VR experience, you really just have to encapsulate a small part of the world. My writer <laughs> and I, we have some layouts for certain content that allows you to, allows the virtual space to maintain your space, but give you the thematic feel of being open source. Oh yeah, so, okay. Because uh -huh. we're meeting you through a story where it's pick your own adventure, but through perceptive narrowing, you can narrow back, oh, yeah. lead it back to an open source. So, it's, so. yeah, it's pretty exciting. You know? Yeah, I love it. We're, we're really getting there. So okay. We'll see. What's one, <laughs> one thing you want to see on every single set? Efficiency. <laughs> uh, I joked efficiency, but um, that you get in, you get out, you do the job, everybody gets along and you get what you intended to, to get in, in terms of the, the, the day's plan is fulfilled. That's what I want to see on a set. <laughs> okay, if you could eliminate one thing from a set, what would it be? Finger pointing. <laughs> Blame when, <laughs> when, the, when the sky does fall. Instead of like, figuring out like for me i'm like let's just figure it out yeah know? it doesn't matter whose mistake it is now right we'll talk about that today it's my fault tomorrow yeah. it's your fault so what let's yeah. just fix it now what are we going to do how do we save today how do we make sure that we get most or or all of what we need today out of today that's when and sometimes it's... mistakes are good mistakes yeah they make you know the, the, accidents the roof getting blown off the guard shack great mistake Beautiful wait, moments. Wait you're gonna, when you see it, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that's what she was talking about. All right. What is the best gift you've gotten from a project or production? Oh, you mean like a wrap gift? No, just gift. I didn't, I didn't define it. I, oh. I didn't open it for you. <laughs> I'm so literal. I'm no, so literal. No, actually, you were very subtle. You, you are, I can see how um, smart and detail-oriented you are because you ask leading setup questions to clarify and you do them really subtly just the next job you know i've gotten some good gifts for sure over the years literal gifts um i've gone to some pretty cool places i've gone to some really not good places as well yeah uh the best gift is the relationships i've built over time all right how do you want the people that you've worked with to remember you i'm a hard worker that i am anticipatory and that I get the job done uh, and that while we're doing it um, we have a laugh. I like to laugh when I'm at work. Okay final question. What is the legacy that you want your loved ones to take from your life? Oh my gosh legacy. So funny I used to think about legacy when I was a kid. <laughs> I don't think about that much anymore um, because it's, it's less about where I'm going to end up and more about how I'm getting there, you know, uh, I, I said, well, then I suppose that's it. The legacy is that uh, a life well lived. Enjoy the adventure, right? Being in the adventure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know where it's going to go. I, I really don't like people say, Oh, you know, let's make this big plan to like do this thing two years from now. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know where, I, I don't know where I'll be in six months, right? Like, and there's a beautiful part of the not knowing, and you just have to love the adventure because 
you're going to go on this ride and there will be things that you never planned for that will be some of the best things that ever happened to you if you're not fighting them the whole time. I love that's one of the things I learned from this business is life is the adventure that you that you go on and I kind of like that we don't know what comes next. You know, I guess some of the terminology of the the day or the, is um, leaning in to <laughs> it. But uh, really what that means is that you said, you know, stop fighting it. And it, it, is, it is truly about an acceptance of where you are and not where you want to be. That striving that people do constantly of like, oh, this isn't good enough. I have to be there in order to be happy. Good luck. Yeah. I, I don't know when you're going to be happy if it's always outside of you, you know. I don't remember when it was. It was, I think when I first got to LA, it was, yeah. Uh, this camera assistant that I, I never worked with him. I met him at a bar and we became friends. We're still friends to this day. And he said to me, he's like, okay, this is what I'm going to tell you about Hollywood. This is, this is the advice I give everybody who just moved here. I was like, oh, okay, what is it? He's like, keep your overhead low. I'm like, oh, that's the big plan. <laughs> and he right. said, well, because you always want to be able to move. And if you got like a big mortgage and like a big like life that you have to, you know, constantly lots of bills and lots of, he's like, I'm telling you, keep your overhead low. You'll always be able to have all the choices. He's like, don't let, you know, essentially like, don't let the outside stuff yeah. uh, bog you down. And in a, in a way, it's like a, it's a bigger idea as well. Like keep it simple. You know, usually the simplest answer is the best answer. You know, what is it? Occam's razor? Katrina Elder, this was like, it was beautiful. It was beautiful to watch <laughs> your excitement, your enthusiasm, your passion while you're curing all of the problems and solving the, the <laughs> chaos that is production. I have a huge team, by the way, that helps me do it. I, and I work for some incredible incredible people, incredible problem solvers that I have learned from. I mean, I, right now, my boss right now, he is so fantastic. He is legit. Like one of the smartest people I have ever worked with or met. I love watching him solve problems. He, there's nothing too big for him. He's fascinating. And I, I, I love it. I love working around people like that. I hope someday that somebody says to me like, Oh, you know, <laughs> she's a she's a real go-getter and she like you know she never let she never lets anybody say no to her she's go and get it get it done you know thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing what you Absolutely. do and sharing yourself with with me and the audience and hopefully somewhere down the road we get to work on a production together and maybe one cool. that you produce with a story that resonates with your heart absolutely absolutely thank you so much this is really enjoyable Thanks for checking out Fish's Call Sheet. I uh, hope you're enjoying this podcast. We have a lot of other episodes where we cover a lot of different categories in our entertainment industry, but I'm so happy to celebrate all the people who make production possible. If you'd like more, or if you'd like to see some of the video with some of the visuals, you can always check us out at any of our social medias at Fish's Call Sheet, or check us out on YouTube, 